0: Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold and we're in the sixth Sunday of Easter. If you recall all the way back to the fifth Sunday of Easter it was the story about the creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Well in the book of Revelation this week the new heaven and new earth is the home for the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven We often think that we go up to heaven because Jesus ascended into heaven um, after his uh, resurrection. But in the the gospel, especially in the book of Revelation, it's God brings about a new heaven, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem where the people of God will live. And so here's what Revelation chapter 21 says that the angel took me in spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It gleamed with the splendor of God. Its radiance was like that of a precious stone. And then it says that in the massive walls of this new Jerusalem, that the wall of the city had, quote, 12 courses of stone its foundation, which were inscribed the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It also had 12 gates, uh, and they're all the gates so that all 12 tribes of Israel can enter into, because the New Jerusalem is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, specifically Isaiah, the late Isaiah, what they call Trito-Isaiah, the very last part of Isaiah, which is The last part written, it's the newest part. People, scholars debate about Isaiah, and they say that Isaiah probably isn't just a man, but a prophet who founded a school, a school of prophets named after Isaiah, and so that this Trito Isaiah, third Isaiah, the last part of Isaiah, is written by um, someone who is maybe the disciple of a disciple of the original Isaiah, Because the book stretches from before the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon uh, into uh, the second temple period. And so uh, here's what Isaiah 62 says. Uh, They'll give him no rest until he reestablishes Jerusalem and makes it the praise of the earth. Pass through, pass through the gates, prepare a way for the people. So chapters 62 through 66 is all the description of the new Jerusalem that the book of Isaiah talks about. So in Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 25. See, I'm creating new heavens and a new earth, which is what we talked about for the fifth Sunday of Easter, that the former things shall not be remembered nor come to mind. But then Isaiah 66, chapters 18 to 22. This is all trito Isaiah. I'm coming to gather all the nations and tongues. They shall come and see my glory. So it's not just the 12 tribes. It includes the Gentiles. Then in verse 20, They shall bring all your kin from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and carts, upon mules and dromedaries to Jerusalem, my holy mountain, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. So the Gentiles will bring their offerings just like the people of Israel do. And then this is significant, chap, verse 21. Some of these I will take as priests and Levites, says the Lord. So he's going to make Gentiles into priests for the people. Because remember, the Levites were a tribe that goes all the way back to Aaron and Moses. But God's going to recreate the priesthood according to Isaiah 66, verse 21. And then it says in the following verse, 22. Just as the new heavens and the new earth which I am making shall endure before me, the oracle, the prophet of the Lord, so shall your descendants and your name endure. So the people of Israel will um, be glorified because the people come to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in this new Jerusalem with its massive high walls, which if you look at the measurements of it, uh, are pretty much the measurement of the Mediterranean world, the world that uh, John of Patmos, the author of Revelation, would have known. And he's, so the 12 gates with four corners, all pointing in the f- four ga- 12 gates, four corners pointing to the four corners of the earth, uh, 12 courses of stone, which is this, the apostles. So the 12 gates for the 12 tribes, the 12 courses of Stone for the Twelve Apostles. If you get that clear, this is why this reading is paired with the reading from the uh, Acts of the Apostles because it's about apostolic authority and the role of apostolic authority in the Christian church. So stay around for the second part of Oral Valley Catholic. And so we're in chapter 15 of the Acts of the Apostles. And if you remember, Acts of the Apostles is volume two of St. Luke's Gospel. You know, they argue about when Luke and Acts were written, but I think one of the most important pieces of evidence is that Acts ends with Paul being taken to Rome. And Acts does not recount either the martyrdom of Paul or St. Peter, who are all central figures in in the book of Acts. And so don't you think that if the book of Acts had been written after the martyrdom of Paul and St. Peter in the 60s, that they would have been recounted, just like the martyrdom of St. Stephen was recounted? Why would they leave it open-ended? I think it's the one piece of evidence that suggests that uh, St. Luke's Gospel and Acts of the Apostles was probably written in the 60s, which is about 20 years after St. Paul's first writing, 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. So the first generation probably hasn't passed away yet as Luke and Acts is written. And so the stories about the early church, which take place obviously before the composition of the Acts of the Apostles, recall uh, the stories about governance in the church. And so chapter 15 picks up one of the great clashes that's in early Christianity. There is a very strong Jewish community in Christianity, and I've talked in the other podcasts about the spiritual geography of Asia Minor. When Paul and Barnabas would go and preach, he would always go first to the synagogues, and apparently he would get some converts from the synagogues who accepted Jesus as the Messiah, but not everybody. That's why some of the synagogues opposed Paul. They stoned him and and uh, chased him out of town, in the various ways they persecuted him. And so it's after they went to the synagogues that they went to the Gentiles, and they were much more successful amongst the Gentiles uh, in, in Asia Minor. But just imagine the situation that sets up where not on the Sabbath, where the Jewish people and maybe the god Gentiles who went to the synagogue, might gather in the synagogue, but early on the first day of the week, which is the day Jesus rose, which is Sunday morning, then Jews and Gentiles would gather together. And we know from this early Christian document called the Didache, the teaching of the 12 apostles, what they would do. They would have a liturgy in the part of the Eucharistic prayer that they made public uh, is in the Didache if you want to read it. But there was also a part of um, Christian worship was, which was a cult that is secret. It wasn't put into writing, but it's the part that Saint Paul recounts in First Corinthians uh, about the gathering for the Eucharist, Corinthians eleven. But when they gathered, they would have, it appears, another meal, and they would also celebrate Eucharist together. They'd read from the Hebrew Scriptures because the New Testament. Is just in the process of coming together, and well, so what do you eat? What do you talk about, Jews and Gentiles? One of the things that comes up is circumcision, and also eating animal sacrifices sacrificed to the Greek and Roman gods in Asia Minor, and so the um, the objections that Jewish messianic Christians raised to Gentile Christianity is that they're not being circumcised. I mean, do you want to be circumcised as an adult male? And they don't keep the kosher law. Uh, the laws about eating meat with blood in it or meat sacrificed to idols. And so we know that this was an actual controversy because it's not only in Acts of the Apostles, but it's also recounted in uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And Galatia is this very part of Central Asia, where this con- uh, Central Asia Minor, where this controversy arose. The Galatians are named after apparently a Gallic tribe that had immigrated across the Dardanelles into, um, into Asia Minor and uh, were culturally very prominent there. That's why it's called Galatia the land of the Gauls. But as you remember, the Gauls are really from France and Western Germany. But here's a group that found its way out to um, uh, Asia Minor. As you know, the Irish are a form of Gauls, the Celts. So you can think of the Galatians as an early form of the Irish, and then draw all the necessary conclusions from that. So what happens when there's this fight between Jewish and Gentile Christians? How do you resolve it? They don't resolve it because they go to the Old Testament and they throw scripture quotes back and forth against each other. That's not how the early church resolves its issues. They don't just decide uh, to break up and there'll be a Jewish Christian church and a Gentile Christian church and they'll do things differently, Uh, but they'll just have their own little church. That's kind of the Protestant solution. This is not what the Galatians do. What they do is they send their apostles, Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem to confer with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch where this controversy arrives. They go to Jerusalem and the first council of Jerusalem is recounted both in Acts of the Apostles and Galatians. And what's important about it is it sets the tone for church governance and I'll build on this a little bit why Christianity is the way that it is. For instance, in the Orthodox churches, everything is resolved by council or synod. Uh, Council an ecumenical council is the entire church. The synod is usually just a part of the church. And so they go for what the first ecumenical council is, and they talk about these two issues, circumcision and what the Gentiles are eating. Paul talks about it. He says he told Peter to his face that he was um, being disingenuous, being a hypocrite, how he could eat with Gentiles like Gentiles eat. And then when the Jews show up, he'll eat with the Jews and pretend he has nothing to do with the Gentiles. But he's already gone to the Gentiles. That's also recounted earlier in Acts of the Apostles, where uh, he has this vision coming down from heaven of this sheet with all these animals in it, uh, clean and unclean. They go back to uh, uh, Mark's Gospel, where Jesus says, it's not what goes into your mouth that makes you unclean, it's what comes out of your mouth. And as Mark's Gospel says boldly, Mark's Gospel to the Romans, therefore Jesus proclaimed, all foods clean. So this is the conclusion that the first ecumenical council of Jerusalem comes to, and it's contained in Galatians, firsthand by Paul, Acts of the Apostles, probably secondhand by Luke, and then uh, Mark, who may or may not have been a, uh, a companion of St. Peter at that council, because John Mark is the evangelist that's connected to St. Peter's. So my point is, uh, all of this is attested by at least those three sources in the New Testament. So after the first council, it says that the council, and Peter spoke on behalf of the whole council, um, sent Judas and Silas, Judas is another apostle, one of the 12 that walked with Jesus, back with Paul and Barnabas. So you have one guy, Judas, that was actually with Jesus, along with these three who were later disciples, to return to Antioch to tell the Jew and Gentile Christians What this council had decided, it's the living authority of the church, and that's recounted in Acts 15. And here's the part from uh, this Sunday's reading that I'll quote. It is the decision of the Holy Spirit and of us not to place on you any burden beyond these necessities, namely to abstain from meat sacrificed to idols, from blood, from meats of strangled animals, and from unlawful marriage. The word there is porneia. It's the root of our word for pornography. If you keep free of these, you will be doing what is right. Farewell. And so that's the first letter. We don't have a copy of it, except that it's recounted in Galatians and in, um, in Acts. So let's just go through those four things. First, to abstain from the, abstain from the meat of sacrifice to idols. So in the pagan marketplaces throughout the Roman Empire, uh, when they sacrificed a bull or a, a goat or whatever they sacrificed, the meat was later sold in the meat market outside the place where the sacrifice took place. And so an oblation is when part of it is offered up to the god and the other part is consumed by the person offering the sacrifice. That's why Eucharist is an oblation Jesus, in the Last Supper, offers himself, the lamb, up to God on the altar of the cross. And what makes it an oblation is the night before he dies, he says, This is my body, take and eat. This is my blood, take and drink. And so it's Jesus' death on the cross is an oblation, where under Jewish law, priests would eat, part, would eat their part of the oblation. The rest would be uh, offered in a fiery holocaust to God. And so the Jewish thinking is, is if you're eating meat sacrificed to an idol, you're engaging in idol worship because worship requires sacrifice. This is the Jewish way of thinking which mean, makes what the Gentiles are doing completely unsucce- unacceptable. How can you offer sacrifice to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob but also offer it to Zeus or Perseus or, as we remember, Artemis. And so for the sake, St. Paul says, obviously these gods don't exist, so that it really isn't an oblation. But for the sake of the consciences of the Jewish believer, please abstain from getting your meat there. Get it someplace else. And then it says to abstain from blood, because if you remember under kosher to this very day, uh, Jewish people do not eat meat with blood in it because blood is the source of life. It's why when Jesus says, drink my, eat my body, drink my blood, you know, you're drinking the blood of God. Um, This is the source of life. And this all goes back to the slaying of Cain, of Abel by Cain, uh, where God says, Abel, your brother's blood calls out to me from the soil. This is a long history in Judaism going back to Genesis. And so to keep kosher by eating meat that's uh, uh, freed from blood, how do you do that? The third part, you abstain from meats of strangled animals. Um, Apparently in Thrace, which is across the Dardanelles from Asia Minor, um, they did sacrifice animals by strangulation, which seems odd to me, but they did. And I don't know how you'd strangle a bull. That would be be a, I don't know how you do that. So I couldn't find any evidence that meat was offered by strangulation in Asia Minor. But obviously a, a way of butchering meat was to strangle animals, so it had all that juicy blood in it. But that's the reason you avoid the meat of strangled animals, because it is blood. And then, and this is kind of this disconnected thing, and abstain from unlawful marriage. But if you remember in 1 Corinthians, one of the complaints of the Corinthians was that one of the members of the church, a Gentile, had married his mother, presumably his stepmother, who was a great deal younger than his father, perhaps. Um, But it was a way of keeping all the property together because marriage mostly in the the pagan world was about property and uh, children, uh, mostly just male children. And so, What's probably being described here is incestuous or uh, marriages or marriages that violated the law of affinity. Affinity is when you marry uh, your mom's sister. She's not your uh, direct line, but she is your mom's sister. That could be incestuous, but it's also barred by affinity. But what if you marry your cousin? Um, that's barred by affinity. Or how about if you marry your aunt's or your uncle's grandchild? Uh, I think barred by affinity. I think that's still within the, the limit, but it may only be his, his immediate children. So affinity is avoiding marriage within a um, restricted distance from you to your parent, to the comp- next ancestor, down to the person you want to marry. So I think affinity is actually three degrees, as I recall, the canon law of affinity. So that's it. That's the only part of the Mosaic law that the early Christians were asked to to observe. And they weren't uh, required to be circumcised. So think of what church authority did. It negated the Torah. It said you don't have to pay attention to this part of the Torah. Because Jesus never really talked about the necessity of circumcision. The church decided for itself because it's the living voice of authority. You know, in St. Uh, Clement's letter to the Corinthians, uh, he talks about this. Saint, uh, This letter was probably written around the year 90 or 100. And it's Clement who is uh, probably the Bishop of Rome writing to the presbyters or the, the episcopoi, the bishop, in Corinth, which is a constant pain in the neck. The Corinthians are a very difficult uh, people and a difficult town. So here's what Clement said in the latter part of the first century about apostolic authority. The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent from God, preaching accordingly throughout the country and the cities. They appointed their first fruits after testing them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who should believe. Our apostles also knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be contention over the bishop's office. So for this cause, having received complete foreknowledge, they appointed the above-mentioned men and afterwards gave them a permanent character so that as they died, other approved men should succeed to their ministry. And so for Bishop Weisenberger in the Diocese of Tucson, any bishop, including the Bishop of Rome, it's this series of hands on their head that go all the way back to the apostles. That's just an historical reality. St. Irenaeus talks about it 100 years later, not quite, but the end of this third part half, the latter half of, this, of the second century, where in his, um, uh, his uh, Contra heresios his uh, adverse to the the heretics, his tome against the heretics. In book three, I think it's chapter three, he actually lists from Clement, actually from Peter and Paul through Clement, to all the bishops of Rome to the date of the writing of that book. So very clearly in the early church, the council of um, Jerusalem and the authority of the church was seen as an ongoing organ in the church. You know, this whole thing that came up in the Acts of the Apostles about keeping kosher, it was dealt with again at the Council of Florence. It was a council that started in Basel, moved to Ferrara, finished in Florence, Italy. It ran from 1439 to 1449. It was at the beginning of the 15th century, or the middle of the 15th century, the 1400s. And it was a time rife with Clashes in Christendom in Europe. It's when Joan of Arc is martyred by the English. Everybody is is maneuvering for control in Europe. Uh, the Pope has been chased out of Rome uh, and gone to Avignon. There's another Great Western Schism. So there's a series of breakdowns in the Christian world, and so Christians were very concerned about solving the problem. Uh, developed a theology called conciliarism. Conciliarism was the idea that an ecumenical council was superior to the pope. And so it goes back again to this reading about the first council of Jerusalem and how Peter speaks on behalf of the entire council. It will not be definitively decided until the first Vatican council in the uh, 19th century. But it was an interesting council. They invited the Orthodox for the first time in about 400 years because it was the last serious attempt to try to overcome uh, the schism between East and West, that is until our present time and the work of our present popes. Um, And so there were Orthodox actually present at Florence. They didn't obviously resolve the schism. The Orthodox were very concerned because uh, Islam was pounding on the door and Constantinople had maybe 200 years left but they were looking to shore up their allegiances with the Western Christians. But at the heart of the Council of Basil was church authority. So they tried to define papal supremacy. They tried to define the infallibility of the pope. Uh, There was more than one pope at the time, so they held up an anti-pope as the true pope, but suspended Eugene IV, who was the pope that actually had called the council 10 years earlier, And then it just, you know, again, just torn apart. This is where the Protestant Reformation takes root. It's where conciliarism goes, the idea that you get the leaders of the people, the kings, you get some bishops, you get priests, and you get a bunch of lay people together, theologians, and you're gonna solve the problems of the church. And this is what ultimately the Protestant Reformation does. Um, But what they did, interestingly enough, is they overturned this prohibition on eating um, uh, meat with blood in it, and meat of strangled animals. They left pornea, affinity and and consanguinity, the two, uh, you can't uh, enter into an incestuous relationship, a relationship that violates a certain degree of affinity. They left that intact. They left intact the uh, adjuring those who would worship idols. But they got they got rid of the part about eating meat with blood in it or the meat of strangled animals, and apparently now Christians could do this, and here's what they said uh, in their in their decrees, um, and referring to this very reading. This was so that the Gentiles should have some observances in common with Jews, an occasion would be offered of coming together in one worship and faith of God, and a cause of dissension might be removed. Since by ancient custom, blood and strangled things seemed abominable to Jews and Gentiles could be thought to be returning to idolatry if they ate sacrificed food. However, since the cause of that apostolic prohibition has ceased, so its effect has ceased. It condemns then no kind of food that human society accepts and nobody at all, neither man nor woman, should make a distinction between animals no matter how they died. And then they refer back to what Jesus had said about what you ate uh, doesn't make you unclean. What comes out of your mouth makes you unclean. Well, the fall of Constantinople and the Fifth Lateran Council, the Protestant Reformation, and then our modern councils bring this whole understanding of the ecumenical council up to the present. So you get the Trent, at the end of the 16th century as Europe is falling apart and it shores up the walls of of, uh, Catholicism, but Christendom is done. It's now Catholic and Protestant. And then in the 19th century, Vatican I proclaims the infallibility of the Pope, controversial at the time, and then Vatican II also uh, proclaims the role of the bishops in the teaching authority of the church because Vatican I ended um, when I think the French had invaded uh, Italy, so we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that what Saint Peter said? It seems to us, uh, and to the Holy Spirit, that and then they give their proclamation. We believe that the Spirit works through the Church and the Church and the Spirit guides all of this. But it's an interesting and complicated story. So let's close in the third part of uh, Oro Valley Catholic as we talk about the Holy Spirit, especially with the upcoming Feast of Pentecost. So why do we believe that the Holy Spirit is worth the church? And so here's what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, which is our Gospel for the sixth Sunday of Easter. If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. We will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you. By the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. That's why St. Peter's talking about the Holy Spirit. That's why we still talk about him. It's, we think of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church and all Christians that God has tabernacled amongst us, he's made his dwelling amongst us, that we're all temples of the Holy Spirit. And so this is to fulfill what St. John the Baptist said in the Gospel of John, I will teach you with water, but one who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so when we get closer to Pentecost, we'll talk about the works of the Holy Spirit who teaches, comforts, counsels, and advocates, as jesus says my peace i leave with you peace i leave my peace i give to you my peace i leave with you and so it's why at mass the the priest says quoting my peace my peace i leave with you my peace i give you he quotes that just before the sign of priest. you know the holy spirit and its role in the catholic church you know we've had this diocesan synod, which participates in synods by all the dioceses all over the world pope francis has tried very hard uh, to reignite the synod, an ancient form of church uh, consultation uh, in the modern times. I hope you participate in our diocesan synod. It's an essential part of coming back together with the Orthodox because that's how they do church leadership. And so as we think about this whole experience of councils through our history and our own present experience of Vatican II and then our diocesan synods, Um, this is all about praying that the Holy Spirit continues to guide us even as um, the bark of Peter uh, enters into troubled waters. Uh, So God bless you, remember me in in your prayers, I remember you in mine. And if you like this, uh, give me a like for Oral Valley Catholic. God bless you until next week.